Imagining Tomorrow with Emma Newman Created in partnership with Friends of the Earth If you've felt any anxiety about the environmental crisis, I'd like to invite you on a journey with me. As a writer of dystopian science fiction, I know how easy it is to see how bad things could get. But some people are doing amazing things right now to combat or in some cases reverse environmental damage to create a better future for everyone. Join me as I explore their work and communities and imagine a tomorrow that is building hope in a changing climate instead of despair. Episode 2 Growing, Feeding, Nurturing Imagine a brisk autumnal day with the first hint of winter on the wind and you're hurrying towards the building you used to work in a few years ago. It's one of many tall blocks crammed into the centre of the city, but as you arrive, you can already see the changes. The marble-floored lobby is now filled with huge indoor planters crammed full of all sorts of dwarf fruit trees and a winding path that leads you through them to the escalator up to the first-floor mezzanine. It feels strange seeing all of the trees where there only used to be marble flooring and a couple of fake plastic ferns in pots. As the escalator carries you up, you watch a man pluck an apple from one of the trees as he walks past. The list of companies in the building has been replaced by a list of crops that are now grown on those floors, with one exception, up on the top floor, which wasn't able to be converted into a vertical farm. It's now an art space, available to rent for affordable prices thanks to being subsidised by some of the revenue from the crops being grown beneath it. The floor that used to be where your cubicle was now has cabbages listed, and you can't help but laugh at how appropriate that feels. Your friend is waiting in the revamped cafe area, the walls now filled with decorative racks of leafy greens being grown in water filled with nutrients. He takes you to a table by the window, overlooking the central courtyard where you used to have your lunch. Back then it was paved over with a few benches positioned around a single tree. Now there's no concrete in sight, and it's filled with so many plants around that old tree you can barely see it. It's one of the hundreds of community gardens that have sprung up in the office district. As you look at the other people in the cafe, several of them wearing old clothes covered in paint as they've come from the top floor art space, you realise just how much things have changed. In 2020, for the first time in my life, I managed to grow some butternut squashes from seed through to harvest. In the early days of spring, I put the tiny potted shoots on shelves in my porch. Every time I watered them, I congratulated them on how fast they grew. It genuinely made me so happy to see them get tall faster than I would have predicted. Hardening them off was a daily ritual of setting them outside for steadily increasing amounts of time to bring them back in before it got cold. Treating them like molly-coddled pets as the country went through its first lockdown. When I planted them in the back garden, I marvelled at how they spread, was thrilled by the first flowers and positively overjoyed at the appearance of the first squashes. 
Looking back on that strange time, it was quite ridiculous how rewarding it was. Harvesting them in the autumn to put them on the windowsill, letting the dwindling sunshine harden the outer skin to make them last through the winter. It felt so primal, I suppose. I had grown food that fed my household. Only a tiny amount, but it felt precious nonetheless. It was nothing compared to the annual bounty that one of my closest friends produces from his allotment each year, but still, so rewarding. I wasn't the only person who discovered a deep love for growing food over the pandemic. Thousands upon thousands of people on furlough threw themselves into gardening. And it wasn't just people who were as lucky as I am to have a garden. Community garden projects were also flourishing in that bizarre and stressful spring that we endured. One of those community gardens sprung up in the grounds of Aisha Mosque in Reading. A lovely video by a lady called Sophia shows how going to the community garden with her two sons during the pandemic became a lifeline and led to the same joy I had experienced growing my squashes. Now we are gardeners and we're growing seeds at home for the wider community. And there's no better place to be than to be part of a community project and eventually be feeding people with dignity. This garden was one of several that became lifelines for people during the pandemic, springing up all over Reading. To find out more about them, I spoke to Kath Burton. I work as a volunteer community gardener in the gardens that we have around Reading. I'm also a trustee for the Reading International Solidarity Centre, which helps organise a lot of those community gardens in our town under the auspices of a project called Food for Families. I came into to this particular project, the Food for Families project, as an initiative around growing veg for Reading at the start of the pandemic. Um, our lives had changed dramatically at that moment in time. I found myself working from home. I was in Reading much more regularly than I had usually been. And I came upon one of those secret gardens that you've just been describing there, right slap bang in the centre of town. How a garden that was half a hectare could have been such a secret to me for so long, I'm not entirely sure. But it, there it was. It was a brilliantly incongruous setting, half a hectare of green lusciousness with tremendous amounts of veg, lots of people growing, lots of other activities going on, surrounded by concrete and the inner ring road, you know, so it was a brilliant place to sort of try and do something that was making a big difference to our, our built and our natural environment. The video made by Sophia was part of an initiative led by Cobra Collective. The collective was launched in 2016 with the mission to empower communities through actually helping them identify and share their own solutions to challenges rather than have outsiders coming in telling people, you know, how to fix their problems. Actually, the solutions are there. It's all about finding mechanisms to let communities speak and uh, their voices to be heard when um, challenges have to be tackled. That's Andrea Berardi, co-founder of Cobra Collective. We then started sort of understanding a little bit more about how we really, really wanted to tell those stories about the benefits of community food growing, all the work that Food for Families programmes were doing to distribute the veg and fruit that was emerging from our gardens and all the other sort of creative, artistic and other sort of well-being activities that take place in our gardens that sort of give us great joy. And that's when Andrea came into my life. 
And it, it was a fantastic partnership. So the strength of the Cobra Collective is to build capacity in community members, you know, everyday people to tell their stories. We have our strength is in participatory video. And so this project was very much about capturing that unique experience though, during the COVID pandemic. You know, we were all uh, restricted to our homes and then could only go out briefly, but community food growing was one of the few things that we could do outdoors. It, it was uh, allowed. And so that was a unique experience that we needed to capture because it demonstrated the resilience that is in our communities and how we ourselves in times of crisis can mobilize to actually make life better for the most marginalized. Community food growing people were growing vegetables, distributing it to the most needy, but also the social, psychological, physical support that that provided. But, you know, that was a brief period and we were desperate to capture those stories. So we had a project where we trained community members in going out there to do community food growing activities and creating these little videos. And so that that experience wasn't lost as we now have gone back to mostly business as usual, because there are going to be other crises and they're only going to be escalating. What the pandemic showed us that actually there is so much strength in our communities that we can capitalize on. So that was how Risk and the Cobra Collective came together. When I think back to the pandemic, so many awful memories return that I can feel myself wanting to forget it. And yet, there's also a part of me that doesn't want to forget, because even though it was a horrific time, it was also a period when many people experienced kindness in their communities for the first time. That shocking disruption enabled us to see the world differently. And while that can often be painful, I feel that it is always useful. For some people, like Sophia, lockdown inadvertently provided the first opportunity to participate in a community garden project. But this quiet movement was already there long before the pandemic. So the Food for Families project in Reading has been operating for the best part of 25 plus years. And there are a network of gardens around the town. I think at one point we've had over 25 of them. Now there's around about eight or 10. And they're in a variety of different settings. Some are taking up a little bit of space in, in an allotment. Others are in the in the centre of town, like the one I just described. Um, some even more are just happening in, in like really, really tiny places. The space that we had um, that was the focus of our, our project with Andrea was a what we called a meanwhile garden. We were temporary custodians of that land. It was a space that had previously been the civic offices in Reading that had been torn down in 2018 to, to make space for uh, something in the future yet to be determined. So we, we sort of built conversations through the various networks that we had and came to an agreement um, with various different um, landowners to, to use that space in a meanwhile capacity, take care of it, grow some veg there, work with local community groups. We had we shared the space with our local Gurkha community who are brilliant and really productive at producing a ton of beans for all sorts of different things. And that, that brought our communities together in, in, a, in a wholly different way that simply wouldn't have been able to connect um, without that space available to them. When talking to Kath and Andrea about the Reading Community Gardens, 
I had this image in my mind of little flowers growing out of cracked concrete, and I shared it with them. Yeah, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to me, especially and sort of thinking about them. Um, I'm going to use the phrase radical hopefulness, which came up a lot in our project. And I think what you're describing there, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, even if they're in the really roughest of looking situations, something good will come of that with a little nurturing, with a little kind of care that's given. And we need to understand how to do that. And that's perhaps something that we gave a little bit more focus to during this time when we were locked in and somewhat limited in terms of our, our movement around the town. It brought a focus to that place. It made not just the place come alive, but the people within it too. So within our in our garden, our garden was called Lavender Place, um, and it was full of lavender. So it had these wonderful scents that could connect us directly with the, the vegetation, but also those plants and those smells and those aspects of being in a shared green space connected us as human beings with each other. And that element of solidarity was really important to us during that time. It was one of the only ways, as Andrea was saying, that we could we could actually see other human beings and, and make a connection. And we drew some brilliant friendships from that, that we and, and connections with the people that we simply wouldn't have had before. Lately, I've been thinking about places where we can meet people and make friends, especially if you've moved house and how those opportunities feel like they're dwindling. In the cost of living crisis, having a third space, not home and not work, which is affordable enough to go to regularly, is starting to feel like a rare social resource. We've closed down our pubs. There's fewer and fewer places, you know, fewer and fewer people go to church. So actually community food growing is one of the few remaining places where you can get people across generations coming together, different genders, different ethnicities. It's just a fantastic melting pot that brings the whole community together. It's also a massive catalyst, a community garden, where lots of different things can happen. You don't have to be a, a gardener in the traditional Monty Don sense in order to join in. We have a number of volunteers who come along and just want to be. There's a guy that comes along and meditates every week with us. You know, he's he's so happy to be there. This is his social connection for the week. And that's really important that we can provide that service as a community to our community and try and sort of instill some of the benefits of shared green spaces and and spread that knowledge of those benefits so that those who are making decisions about the future shape of our town, whether it has enclosed spaces for all or not, start to understand that their, their public is really in need of this kind of green well-being, this natural health service, if you like. I love the phrase natural health service. The social benefits also extend to sharing knowledge and skills that could be lost without these spaces. And I think that's the the brilliant thing about community gardens, as Andrea was saying as well, we can connect regardless of how much knowledge you have, regardless of your background, regardless of what you're doing right now. And there's always a way to extend that knowledge into a new learning. So as much as there may have been really good farming techniques that those Nepalese Gurkhas were bringing to our weird urban space in the centre of Reading, there was an element of having to deal with the really poor substrate that we were working on, which turns out was not dissimilar to growing up a mountain um, in Nepal. So you just don't know when those connections are going to reveal themselves and that you can see that abundant possibility in the, in the land. After the conversation I had with Kath and Andrea, I found myself thinking differently about the streets where I live. Every patch or stretch of grass 
Filling a gap between a pavement and the start of a garden or a building boundary suddenly felt like a wasted opportunity. Better things could be grown there than sad, generic grass. How many apple trees could fit down that stretch next to the local takeaway? How many squashes could I grow around that squat little power station building round the corner? But it's not as simple as that, is it? There are barriers to starting community gardens, aside from having the time to devote to them. In terms of obstacles, I think the, the biggest challenge is actually dealing with the various landowners. So actually local authorities own quite a lot of the land and often they are desperate for you to take over the management of this land because they are running out of funding and the, you know they they would love you to maintain it so actually uh, there are huge opportunities there and as you said even very small parcels can have a huge impact i see it almost like urban acupuncture that you can have a very targeted intervention in an area that has ripple effects throughout the community you know benefiting mental health physical health with all the exercise people are doing but also creating that connection with people and i think uh, councils are actually seeing the benefit of releasing some of their land to communities because it does tick so many boxes in addressing the cost of living crisis, in addressing the physical and mental health crisis, and, and also creating greater community cohesion across generations. He's right. Recently, Hull City Council voted to give residents the right to grow on unused council-owned land. It was a motion unanimously supported across all parties. And if it's passed by the council's scrutiny committee, the council will proactively provide a map of potential sites and help with insurance and, where needed, the provision of water. Friends of the Earth and the Cooperative Bank are also working together to bring back nature by helping to restore greenery and wildlife in over 1,000 nature-deprived spaces across the country through the Postco Gardener programme. I'll be talking about that in another episode, but until then you can find a link to more information about it in the show notes at www.foe.uk forward slash imagining tomorrow. Of course, if a patch of land is available, checking for soil contaminants before growing anything edible is just common sense. And if it is contaminated, that doesn't mean you can't put planters on it to grow food, or instead grow plants that can remediate the soil over a period of time. Anything is better than those sad patches of grass, not the least because of the other major benefit of tiny community gardens increasing biodiversity. When you begin to have intercrops and you grow organically and you use local resources and you maybe mix in some uh, wildflowers, that brings so much nature. So you create oases within quite, you know, these, these concrete deserts. So Biodiversity certainly benefits from community food growing. By the way, if you're listening to this during the winter, there's no better time to identify a potential future garden space. Keeping an eye out for those neglected patches and planning how to regenerate them 
makes going for walks on dull, damp days all the more cheerful. And if you do find one, you've got plenty of time to work out how to get things started well in time for the spring and planting season. Another shift since the pandemic has been the increase in the number of people working from home. While some companies have been doing all they can to encourage, cajole, and in some cases force their employees back to the office, many have permanently pivoted to at least a hybrid model, having seen the financial benefit of no longer having to lease large amounts of office space. In my daydreams, enjoyed while walking through town centres and cities since the pandemic, and noting how many large commercial office space buildings seem to be empty, I've started to reimagine dense urban spaces. Of course, as a writer, I dream of an arts renaissance, where painters, dancers, writers all finally have access to affordable space as the market demand drops. But what if those buildings could be repurposed not just to improve our social and cultural lives, but also our food resilience. Could vertical farming be a potential way to do that? I don't know. So I went and found someone who knows much more about this than I do. My name is Matt Klebeck, and I am the Chief Scientific Officer and co-founder at Harvest London. Harvest London is a vertical farming company which is a certified B Corp, having achieved the highest score of any vertical farming company in the world. B Corps can evidence meeting high environmental and social standards, and they also commit to transparency and accountability. Vertical farming has been around for some time, benefiting from relatively recent advancements in LED lighting technology, which is used to grow plants indoors. Part of that B Corp status is due to Harvest London sourcing all its energy needs from a 100% renewable energy supplier. Solar and wind. So the energy partners we work with diversify enough so that we can they can guarantee us renewable energy. I think one of the big problems that happened when energy prices went berserk recently, for reasons that we're all aware of, was that a lot of glasshouse growers had to shut down in the colder months because they couldn't afford to heat their glasshouses. Our heating bill isn't big because our lights produce a lot of heat and really we're trying to cool. And there's different pressures on the cost of electricity and the cost of gas. Very fortunately, we sort of fixed our energy price at a good time. It's also about being very good at how, you know, when, what time of day you use that lighting, you know, because energy prices fluctuate over the day, how much you're running at night versus during the day. Can you turn the lights off for a little bit longer when prices are high, leave them on for a little bit longer when prices are low? It all helps. The plants are fed using hydroponics, essentially delivering all the nutrients the plants need via water without the need for soil. The plants are grown in layers that are stacked, hence the name vertical farming. In a given footprint, we can pack more plants in because we can go up. And then sort of around that is an element of quite sophisticated climate control as well. So um, seeing as you're growing the plants inside, you might as well provide them with um, the perfect environment as well. Um, to ensure the best growth so that's kind of what we do and then outside of that it's it's quite a lot of sort of traditional horticulture stuff really Um, a lot of pipes and water flowing and tanks and valves and you know 
clever bits of computer systems that control all of that. But really, it's about taking sort of technology that already exists and combining it in a relatively novel way and, you know, just giving the plants exactly what they want all year round. Providing super fresh food with consistent and predictable quality has been the backbone of Harvest London. We've grown hundreds of different varieties of of things over time. Everything from lettuce to Peruvian mint to radishes and carrots and nasturtiums and anything else that I would have thrown in there, flowers and exotic herbs and all sorts of stuff. Now, because we have to be a business, because fundamentally we've got to pay people's wages and all that sort of stuff, we go where the market goes. So we grow a lot of basil, Italian basil and Thai basil. Um, We grow those two. And then we grow a sort of big mix of baby leaf salad. Originally, the main customer for the farm was Pizza Pilgrims, which is a chain of pizza restaurants in London. And their issue they were facing is that they put basil on the pizza and each time they got a basil delivery, it was different because some months of the year it would come from the hills of Italy in Liguria, which is the real, you know, cream of the crop stuff. But for the rest of the months of the year, when it wasn't lovely weather there, um, it was coming from anywhere between Ethiopia, Israel, Spain, etc. So the list goes on. And each of those countries grows them in a, grows the basil in a slightly different way, a slightly different variety. It has to travel a long way. They were just not getting a consistent product. And so we came in and said, we'll give you exactly the same day on day, all year round, which is kind of how the relationship with them started. And then since then, we've expanded our customers. We do less now, but we used to do a lot of sort of trendy Thai restaurants who were looking for Thai ingredients that you just can't get from your average wholesaler here in here in London or here in the UK. It has to be imported. It's a long distance. The quality goes down, et cetera, et cetera. It makes far more sense to me to move away from flying short-life food products like herbs and leafy greens around the world and instead grow them in urban settings using vertical farming to produce them a cycle right away from where the demand is. However, at the same time, part of this shift would need to be supporting farmers in developing countries who currently grow these products to transition to sustainable livelihoods without the need to export to places around the world. The thing that really appeals to me about vertical farming, however, is its potential impact on biodiversity. Considering that this is arguably one of the most artificial ways to grow food, that might sound strange. However, for me, It's more about the fact that the techniques used in Harvest London's enterprise remove the variables that actively harm biodiversity when used in industrial-scale agriculture. Let's start with the hydroponics. You have to add an amount of nutrient to that water um, and a couple of other things as well to keep the water healthy. Um, And then when that water is, unlike in a field where if you were to spray fertiliser on the field it would then run off into the wider environment. We recapture it all and recirculate it around. So the plants get watered, the water drains off, goes back to the tank, the plants get watered, water drains off, goes back to the tank. We use less water, we use a, a lot less water um, than open field. And there was a point in time where you, you might be able to ignore that and you might be able to say, well, that's not that important, but it's becoming more and more important. You know, as As the world gets worse, it's becoming more and more important. We don't necessarily use less 
fertilizer per kilogram of crop because the plants still need to grow in the same way but we definitely waste less because we're recapturing the water so the majority of the fertilizer we use is used by the crop as opposed to by the crop and then off somewhere else that somewhere else is often our rivers and waterways having a terrible impact on their health and ability to support biodiversity Another threat to biodiversity caused by mass industrialised approaches to agriculture is the heavy use of pesticides. We don't use pesticides, which I think is, is probably, in the grand scheme of things, a good thing, just because we don't have to. It's a closed environment. The bugs don't get in. We don't need to get rid of them. Looking at the wider picture, Harvest London's model means there is a huge reduction in food miles and non-sustainable packaging. We sell in these big reusable, returnable plastic crates that we pick up and wash out. The supply chain for us is much, much shorter now at the moment because of the scale we're at. All of our delivery is on bikes. The team that's in the farm today would have done a harvest this morning uh, and it will be in the kitchens four hours later, which is pretty unheard of. Um, it's, it's, it's great for the chefs. However, the packaging benefits are reduced when a company scales up to supply supermarkets and direct to home consumers rather than restaurants. As the business expands to cater to retail and to customers, that plastic thing becomes a bit unavoidable because um, plastic is very, very good at keeping crops fresh and there aren't that many alternatives out there that supermarkets will, will accept um, because the supermarkets have their own interests in what is stocked on their shelves in terms of the packaging. But it's UK grown, which is a lot more than could be said for a lot of other stuff that we eat a lot of the year round. I'm not for a moment suggesting that vertical farming is the best way to feed the UK, as that would be ridiculous for so many reasons. However, as Matt agreed, I think that vertical farming could form a very valuable piece of the domestic food production puzzle. The reality is, is a huge amount of the produce that we eat is imported because we don't eat seasonally, which is one, you know, it'd be great if we could all grow our own food in the back garden and eat tomatoes in the summer and cabbages in the winter and no one wanted tomatoes in winter unless they were from a can, you know, etc. Et but that's not how it works, unfortunately. So we try, you know, we're, we're looking at providing that product that is usually imported, which is actually a huge amount of stuff. There's no point us competing with British growers on a, num on a wide number of crops because they'll grow it outdoors for not free, but certainly the light's free in the summer in the, in the right times. And there's a huge amount of other stuff that goes into it. There's, there's, you're thinking of things like lettuce, for example, which I know is like just a lettuce, but so much has gone into it so far from the industry in terms of how the glass houses that grow lettuce operate and how, how they've worked out ways to extend that growing season. And, but it relies on energy prices being reasonable or the price of inputs being reasonable. And there's these, the, the market forces that influence whether or not you can grow a lettuce in a glass house are mind-boggling. So we don't try and compete with stuff that, that you can grow in open field um, here because there's just no point. Just looking at the growing seasons in the Mediterranean region that supplies a large amount of our fruit and veg over 2022 and 2023, the impact that the climate crisis is already having on food production is apparent. Add in the impact of Brexit and the way that it has made the importing of food so much more expensive and bureaucratically challenging for growers, 
we've already seen the consequences in the major UK supermarkets. The energy crisis had a large impact on several UK-based suppliers that couldn't afford to heat huge glass houses. I've never seen so many supply problems during my weekly supermarket shops as I have this year. And where I live, there aren't any alternatives. Could vertical farming solve some of these issues? How Brexit has affected our industry, unfortunately, is it's actually kind of had this difficult thing where as things get worse, what we do becomes more necessary. So if you can't get lettuces over the border, if you can't get basil over the border, it makes sense to grow it here. And if it's December, the kind of only way to do it is doing what we do. We see ourselves as a controlled environment agriculture company. And what that means is, is that vertical farms make sense for plants that are that tall. Imagine Matt holding his hands about 50 centimetres apart. Because you can do lots of levels, but tomato plants are six foot tall. Does it make sense to grow them in a vertical farm? Probably not, but it does make sense to grow them in a super high-tech glass house, which you can still get the same energy benefit. You know, you can still get a lot of the same benefits from things like potatoes and wheat and rice. We don't really have a problem growing. Yes, climate the climate is affecting these crops, but not in the same way as it is affecting fruits and leafy veg, you know. But really, it's again about what's economically viable and where the shortages are and what is difficult to do outside and what can be brought inside. Yes, I don't think you're going to feed a nation on lettuce, but green leafy vegetables are important to people's diets. Whether that's a lovely, beautiful red butterhead lettuce or a spinach or a kale or just a, you know, a summer green or whatever. And, and the reality is people like eating them and people like a varied diet. We're very fortunate to be able to demand that varied diet. But still, tomatoes are really good for you and kale's really good for you. And so I think there is a place for all of these things to exist alongside each other. Vertical farming is like one piece of this puzzle of how we provide food, not the solution to everything. That's the hope that you can, you can do these two things simultaneously or take bits of learning from what we do and apply it to other methods of growing, for example. For me... The appeal of vertical farming in the urban environment is repurposing abandoned or underutilised buildings to be able to grow food a cycle ride away from shops instead of importing it from distant places already suffering from the impact of the climate crisis. Something like the origins of Harvest London. The first place that we built was kind of in a brick shed above an MOT garage in Walthamstow. We sold that out. We were selling to a handful of small restaurants. Then we built the current farm that we're in, which is much, much more technologically advanced, much more food safe, much more controlled. But how realistic is it to just find an empty building and make it into a vertical farming enterprise? Planning permission is only about external works. So with us, the only external stuff is what's called chillers on the outside of the building. Planning is also involved in what's called like use case of the building. So if your building was an office building and you want to turn it into manufacturing, that can be tricky. So you just go and find a building that's been zoned for manufacturing. But really, from a sort of 
council point of view, every time we've spoken to councils about this sort of stuff, they're very positive about what we do. The challenge really is you need to find a landlord who is accommodating because if a landlord owns a warehouse, what they'd like you to do is absolutely nothing to change the fabric of that warehouse. They just want you to put boxes in there and bring a lorry in and take a lorry out. Whereas we come along and say, can we drill a hole in the floor? Can we drill a hole in the wall? Can we put a bigger pipe in here? And so you have to find a open-minded landlord to work with on, on that subject. For it to be viable economically, if you're trying to make a business out of it, you want really high ceilings, a really flat floor, you want some drains in there, and you want plenty of water and plenty of power. We've discovered firsthand the, the limitations of not getting those things right. And so I, while I think that I think what you would end up having to do is if you took over an office building that was underused, you'd have to knock some knock some floors through, do some, some structural work, which, again, is totally possible, especially when if land is at a premium. I think what some people have found as well is that, I mean, it is, it's still farming at the end of the day and it still requires maintenance and it still requires someone who knows what they're doing to grow the product to, a, to an acceptable standard. And you, you, you still need to have a grower. We haven't got to that point yet where you can just stick the kit in and, and everything works. Um, we're not quite there yet, thankfully, because otherwise I'd be out of a job. It's still farming at the end of the day and you're still dealing with something organic, which has its whims that you need to cater for, right? When I imagine an average city and consider the ways to grow food there, it's clear that there are going to be fewer financial barriers to starting to grow food in a community garden. But there are still costs. Compost, tools, water butts, all of these are needed to both get established and to maintain them. I asked Kath and Andrea about what kind of help is available out there. There tend to be quite small pots of funding for the very things that you've just been describing. So the RHS might run various different schemes and, and projects where there'll be a small amount, a couple of grand to get things off the ground. They'll provide you with the tools and the and the materials. They won't necessarily provide any coverage for somebody taking the time to pull all of that together. And I think that's the, the real challenge, that a lot of these grassroots-based activities and groups are getting involved in require a lot of time. There's a lot of organisation that's unseen. We're there like those mushroom networks that are sort of pulling all of the different elements together to grow the thing that pops out of the ground. But that, that requires some resourcing and that often requires some funding to get to get people to be involved, um, and rightly so. And that's really, that's really the challenge, actually getting um, core funding to keep all of those projects alive. There's no shortage of funding for spades and compost. Like so many things that are desperately needed and yet not funded, community gardens do rely upon people having the time and energy to put into them. But that isn't something that needs to be tackled alone. If you find a patch of ground that could be a viable community space, there may already be people in your area who are raring to go. But how do you find them? You know, the, the way, for example, things have started in my village is uh, very enthusiastic individuals, not actually connected with any formal organization, 
identifying a green space that looked a little bit neglected and saying, well, you know, can we do something here, uh, plant some herbs, plant a few tomato plants? So they went on our local Facebook uh, community page, said, can, can we ask who, uh, you know, manages the space? So it's the council. Can we have permission to plant a few things? The council said, yes, feel free. And before you know it, you know, it just attracted more and more people. So I, I would say if there isn't a clear organization like Incredible Edible or Transition Towns or that is involved locally with community food growing, start your own, you know, find a neglected space, contact your council, say, you know, can I start growing here? They will bend over backwards to, to say, Please have it. <laughs> Go for it. Um, you know, Surrey County Council uh, allowed us to plant uh, five fruit trees on, on a local corner on a verge last year. And, uh, and now these trees are beginning to bear fruit. You know, even little corners are the beginning of something. And we're hoping that it'll just expand and our plants are to start with these five fruit trees and we want to cover the whole community in little fruit trees people can help themselves and you know that's the future for me you know we want these places to flourish and grow and have wildflowers and crops and trees so that communities can benefit while i have mixed feelings about social media it's also another way to find community garden projects that have already been established or to find other people who might like to start one with you. Just recently, we've started to put together Incredible Edible Reading, which is going to be like an overlay of all the different food growing initiatives and food, food interested, food curious um, groups around our town. And it has been tremendously eye opening how many other aligned but not quite the same activities are going on. So as soon as you start putting that message out there that there's something that connects you, We've all got to eat. The byline for Incredible Edible is if you eat, you're in. It really is a conversation starter to sort of say, well, what are you doing? How could I get involved? And you don't have to go all in. You could be sitting at home being a keyboard warrior, sending off all of your, your messages to the council to stop spraying the verges and um, you increase that biodiversity. Or you could come along for an afternoon for a couple of hours and, and dig in the soil or meditate. So there's, there's usually an option to get involved that can be a little bit more formalised or, or not. I spoke to award-winning science fiction author and screenwriter Temi O oh about what kind of positive vision of the future we could create inspired by these amazing community growers and vertical farming. As someone who has always lived in a city, Temi was wonderfully honest about her disconnection with growing food. Um, but we went to visit my friend who at the time was at Schumacher College and she was showing me um, the different areas where they did um, lots of growing. She was a grower there. She kept like picking things off off the ground and then biting into them or like showing me like where their like bushes of tea leaves were or carrots like with dirt and then biting them and then handing them to us. And we think we want to be polite, but all of our instincts say not to eat something that came straight out of the ground. <laughs> I don't know. I felt embarrassed about asking so many questions because I realize I I'm not a hundred percent sure where almost anything grows like there were things that grew in the ground that I didn't know grew in the ground I couldn't recognize what a lot of things were or like the flowers of certain thing certain fruit and certain veg so yeah I don't know it, it made me realize how severed I am from that 
which has kind of provoked an anxiety in me that I've sort of been working through in my fiction. In More Perfect, there's um, a scene where the characters go from the city and then they go and live with these people who have this sort of commune community where they grow all their own food and they hunt for animals. And one of my characters feels like the world is completely alien to her. Yeah, even though this is sort of the way people have lived for hundreds and thousands of years. This disconnection from the land and from the way food is grown was something that came up in my conversation with Kath. In fact, when I asked her what she would love to change in the world, she said this. If we could try and eradicate the idea that a dirty carrot's a scary thing, that would be a wonderful objective for us as community food growers. And it has been really eye-opening over the past couple of years to have conversations with people who are are unsure, who are unsure about where, where veg comes from, for a start. And uh, I had one conversation with somebody who said, well, yeah, I really love what you're doing in community gardens. And I love that there's veg being produced for others that, that can't grow that themselves and, and are in need. But I really don't trust that dirty carrot with the tops on it. It gives me the creeps. I'd rather go and buy the really bright orange ones from the plastic bag in the supermarket. So, and I could not get to the bottom of what was what was really bothering him. But there's something about that kind of distrust that we have in, in our land and trying to put the the positive stories out there, I think is part of our mission as well, to say that, you know, the dirty carrot's your friend. It's probably more friendly than the bright orange carrots in the plastic bag, you know, and you can do so much more with it. You know, you can you can pull it out of the ground. You can see what origin story it has. You can use the tops of it to make pesto and just really trying to sort of get people more connected to those, those origin stories of, of the food around us that we can actually engage with a lot more. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about how Great Britain was the first place in the world to be industrialised and cause a mass migration of people into towns and cities that rapidly grew in size and made the growing of one's own food impossible. How the Enclosures Act and the Clearances severed so many communities from the land that used to feed them. These events took place hundreds of years ago here, and we have so many generations of people now who have never grown their own food. And that fundamental disconnection saddens and disturbs me. As Temi said. But yeah, I think farming, especially if you live in a city, is something that happens very very far away from you. It's sort of like psychologically far away and then like actually far away. So I think if everyone was involved in it, then you would learn to have an appreciation for it. And then I also wonder if the way a lot of us are divorced, not just from where our food comes from, but like the impact that it has on the world and the earth and the soil and the animals around. If we could, if we were closer to it, then we would, we would probably maybe more, all of us strive a bit harder to protect it. Hand in hand with that shift is also appreciating the role of growers and farmers in society, which I feel has been sidelined for a painfully long time. In Temi's first book, Do You Dream of Terra 2, about a team of people going on a journey to another planet which takes many years, that importance of having someone who can provide food is shown by the composition of the crew. Out of 12 people, each with absolutely critical roles, two are growers. Because it's, it's essential for society. And whenever, I don't know, we're, we're often thinking about the things that one or the other of us would do if there was like a 
apocalyptic event who we would need and their joke is always like well the sci-fi writer (laughs) do we need you but um, but like definitely my friend who's a farmer yeah (laughs) i'd just like to state that in the case of an apocalypse i can make clothes as well as tell stories so i hope i'll get a place in a survivor's camp somewhere The disconnection from the production of food can be reversed relatively easily if one has access to even just one planter or one fruit tree. Recently, like we have, so we have an apple tree in our garden and we pick the apples. And just before I was talking to you, I was um, uh, making them into a cake. And I don't know, I felt so, I guess, like thankful to to nature, (laughs) which I wonder if like, if, I was close to how all of my food and clothes and everything that I rely on comes from nature and saw it. I would maybe have that more often. I'd have that thought because we're lucky in the, in the place that we've moved has two big apple trees. So more apples than we can eat. And a friend of mine was like, Oh, we actually have lots of cherries. So like we'll come over and pick some of your apples. You can take some of our cherry. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know, that exchange feels really lovely. I think it would be nice if there was more of that amongst communities as well. I like, we're both saying that like, we did nothing. We got this fruit. It felt to me like a gift. And then hopefully I can gift other people with that. And that's sort of like, I don't know, having a bit more of like a gifting economy that's kind of begins. That's sort of the foundation of it, I think is a really lovely idea. I remember there was this one year that I worked in Waterstones, which is uh, which I really enjoyed. But w- one thing I noticed was just before Christmas Eve, everyone coming and going, I need a gift, I need a gift, I need one now. <laughs> and then like Boxing Day, people like queuing up outside to like give things back. <laughs> but it made me think about like that sort of, I don't know, in all of our economy um, and how, I don't know, maybe how we could be a little bit more sort of eco-friendly um with gifting so maybe gifting more things that like we've made and grown and having like more of a culture of that i think it was temi who also suggested combining vertical farming with indoor social spaces which was one of the inspirations for the fiction snippet that you heard at the start of this episode if you fancy having a go at envisaging a potential future I'll be giving you something else to fuel your imagination right at the end of the episode. If you're listening to this and you've been growing food in your garden, these gluts of a particular crop will be familiar to you. But for people like Temi and I, and other town dwellers who have never really grown our own food, it feels revolutionary. Just a few weeks ago, I harvested some blackberries from a rogue bramble in my garden. And it felt incredible that they just appeared and I could pick and eat them without needing to go to a supermarket, without having to pay money, without needing to have any plastic packaging involved at all. The exchange of excess crops combined communities together. In episode one, I talked about the Kum Aryan Renewable Energy Community Group, who also have community activities surrounding the apple harvest. And this makes me think of traditions like apple bobbing and even wassailing and all the other dozens of intersections between community, tradition and food. Because to me, 
it's all interconnected. Community gardens are seen in Reading and across hundreds of similar projects across the UK knit us together, not only with other people, but also nature and often art, as seen at the Aisha Mosque Garden in Reading. No, the garden is still at the mosque and I'm happy to say that it's thriving and Sophia has done lots of work there and we've got a garden tutor installed at the mosque now as well. So they are doing brilliant work. Shaheen is one of the best community organisers I think I've ever encountered um, and is doing fabulous work to bring in not just the, um, the mosque community to do the gardening, but others from our garden. We had um, a number of non-gardening based activities taking place. We had a sculptor in residence. He now does lots of courses at the mosque and has learned some elements of Islamic design and sculpting techniques that he's now sort of, you know, he's co-creating that knowledge with, with, the, with the mosque community. Um, so there's that real, real fab, really fabulous artistic, creative knowledge exchange that's happening, but as a result of bringing people into that space to garden. Whether we grow potatoes in a tub by the back door, or establish a community orchard, or grow vegetables in patches of ground around community buildings, or sow wildflowers on verges, or grow food in reclaimed indoor spaces that don't harm rivers or kill insects, we are all weaving that tapestry of food and social and biodiversity resilience that we so desperately need. Because when nature thrives, we do too. You've just listened to an episode of Imagining Tomorrow, brought to you in partnership with Friends of the Earth. It was researched, written and produced by Emma Newman. To find out more about Emma's work, go to www.enewman.co.uk. Details about the people featured in this episode can be found in the show notes at www.foe.uk forward slash imagining tomorrow, along with some resources that you and your community might find helpful and information on how Friends of the Earth is supporting communities across the UK. Have you got a similar story of hope and innovation to share? Have you been inspired by this episode? Tell me about it. You can email me at podcast at enewman.co.uk. Before I go, here's something to fuel your imagination. There are many huge commercial buildings, such as old shopping malls, that are now lying empty and unused due to changes in demand. If you could repurpose one and had the budget to do so, what would you do with it? I hope that you're inspired to imagine a better tomorrow. <laughs>